0: Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, with your hosts, authors Keith Giles and Matthew J. DiStefano. Welcome back, buckaroos. What do you say, Keith, on, on Heretic APR? <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: oh, hey, hey uh, buckaroos. Hello, buckaroos and buckarettes.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're back. We're back for episode. This is the third installment of the relaunch. Yes. It just, we've got momentum now, baby.
1: The excellence just keeps continuing. It doesn't the, end. It's relentless.
0: Excellence. Well, is excellence the right word?
1: <laughs> well, yeah,
0: I don't know. We One just, can uh, never be sure.
1: The, the quality of just not giving up doesn't guarantee, yes, any – it speaks, says nothing about the quality of that thing other than its inability to stop.
0: There you go. There you go. We got a, um, we got a good one today. We have no – this has been a nice episode for our editor, which is myself. I didn't have to chop up anything uh-huh. uh, like last episode, uh, but we are going to discuss your book and more broadly the topic of hell, your book, Jesus Undefeated. Yep. Um, unlike the evangelicals, Jesus utterly defeated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is, the doctrine of hell would be Jesus utterly defeated.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he wins a little bit. He gets a couple of people. You know, he's good, but he's not that good.
0: It's uh, it's hardly a win. It's like saying the Detroit Lions win now and then. It's like, yeah, sure. But. <laughs> Randomly. Historically yeah. speaking, they're pretty bad. Right, Um, But before we get into the topic, we again have a lovely sponsor, lovely sponsor today. I think everyone is really going to resonate. Mm. And I hope, I hope just us pushing this really sends product off the shelf.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, it's really great to be able to sponsor things that we believe in and uh, partner with with, uh, sponsors that, you know, we just, uh, that we resonate with. So I think, yeah, I'm really excited about this.
0: All right, let's roll it.
1: Hello, friends. Have you lost your job? Is your marriage in trouble? Or maybe your children are considering an alternative homosexual lifestyle? Well, whatever your struggles, we have the answer. It's time to Satan-proof your home and protect your family from the devastating attacks of demonic spiritual forces. My name is Reverend Arlo Slaughter, pastor of the Backwoods Bible Fellowship in Frog Jump, Missouri. And after years of casting out demons and overthrowing spiritual strongholds of the enemy, my team of exorcists has developed a revolutionary new home protection device, the Satan Detector, designed to detect, identify, and eliminate Satan's influence in your home. With our patented Satan detection technology, the Satan detector alarm will sound any time a demonic influence is found. Our device is proven to help you eliminate Satanic strongholds so the power of God and the Shekinah glory can return to bless you and your loved ones. Maybe it's that Harry Potter book in your study or a copy of the message under your bed. If so, our Satan detector will find it so you can sleep in a demon-free home. Maybe you've got pornographic material like Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, or Ladies Home Journal. Our Satan Detector will sniff it out. Whether it's a copy of Jesus Calling, a Beth Moore study guide, or God forbid, a DVD of that heretical filth from the pit of hell, The Shack, our Satan Detector will set you free and send Satan and his minions running for cover. Call now and we'll throw in a free copy of the King James Bible, the only approved version of the Word of God to replace all those modern corruptions of the Scriptures you may have accumulated over time. Get your Satan detector delivered overnight for a suggested minimum donation to Backwood Bible Fellowship of just $99.99. And set your family free today.
0: All right. right. Thank you. Thank you, sponsor.
1: Thanks, Thank you so much, sponsors. We really appreciate it.
0: Once again, a winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it's a perfect—it's the perfect sponsor for this episode. So
1: it is. Yes, you know. accidentally, it is sort of a. Um,
0: accidentally, <laughs> it we just planned worked out. This shit, man, it just worked
1: out that way. Yeah. So yeah, this is an important topic, and I don't know. Should we say that randomly? I guess you know throughout uh, this podcast. We're gonna probably pause and do something like this in, in the future, like kind of stop and talk about one of our books for
0: an episode, right? Well, I'd li- I'd like to, yeah, I would like to talk about not not so much like I'm interviewing you about your book, but right. kind of like let's talk about. The I top. mean, with the, with the context, yeah, the topic of the book and kind of why it's important. Yeah. Um. So obviously, the topic of eternal suffering is the topic of Jesus undefeated and you and I both came up from a place where we were told eternal suffering is yep. reality for so many people after they die and I'm sure it had different impacts on us but probably similar um, <laughs> similar in many ways because it's such a it's such a terrifying doctrine so
1: yeah oh yeah it, it's a big big deal and um, yeah I believed it uh, you know, I was only given like most Christians, right? This is this is one of my problems with this whole topic: is that most Christians have ever only been told there is one biblical view of this idea of of this concept of hell, and so here it is; it's the only one, and uh, and the Bible totally supports it. And here is a couple of verses I am going to just quote randomly to tell you that this. See, see, there it is in the Bible, and so you think, well, that is that's it, and I guess that's the way it is. And so, it, it, rule, it rules you by fear, a little, a little sprinkle of ignorance, because you're not you're not allowed to know that. Oh, hey, shh. By the way, um, the Old Testament never mentions this, not even one time. And for really, so for like six thousand years, God just never thought it was important to mention that His plan was to torture people for eternity. Uh, you know, who reject Him or whatever. That's number. That's the first thing. And then the other thing, of course, is that. And you and I know this because of church history, which you find out later. I only found this out later on my own sort of, you know, reading and studying and finding out like, oh, holy crap. Like the Christian church for the first like 400 years, some say 500 years, but conservatively I'll say 400 years of church history. The kind of the majority of Christians um, embraced universal reconciliation. And that's, that's a huge shock because you're like, what? That doesn't seem to make sense. How could that be? if, that what the Bible clearly says is that God's plan is to roast people for eternity. So really honestly in my book, that's that's really some of the main things I try to accomplish is just to say, hey everybody, by the way, here's some information you will not hear from the pulpit. You're not going to hear it in Sunday school. People are not going to tell you this, but this is this is demonstrable you know fact about what the Old Testament says about this doctrine, which is nothing which is why Jewish people don't inve- don't embrace this view of eternal torment cuz it's not in their scripture and um and then the, you know just knowing historically how the early Christians embraced the idea that everyone will be saved right
0: yeah it's funny how um there's like there's there's vitriol towards someone who is a universalist but then there's the same amount of vitriol that is someone toward who simply points that out right. i i i did this um in a book and on, on Patheos. And I just, I started, um, the chapter with a quote from Mark Driscoll. And it's, I think the same quote he uses, uh, when Kevin Miller interviews him in Hellbound, And it's that for, since the beginning, the church has rejected universalism and it's been a heresy. And he lists like, uh, Tyndale and then Athanasius. And he, so he goes back. What oh, he went, well,
1: although he went all the way back to
0: the he beginning. He the way back to Augustine.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: And I simply wrote uh, um, like an historical survey of universalism, not an apologetic for it, not even the fact that I'm a universalist, so therefore it's right because the patristics agree with me. Simply a, a, like a, a matter of historical fact, like you just said. Yeah. And he blocked the entire unfundamentalist Christian blog when I used to write for them. Wow. And And it was like... You're so insecure that someone can't just hist- point out an in, in, in historical inaccuracy that you say. I'm not even saying you're wrong. I'm not even saying I'm right because Gregory of Nyssa was was a universalist. I'm right. just saying that he was. He might right. have been wrong, but he was.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, and when you can point to the fact that all these early church fathers embraced this idea, um. You know, it's also, it's like once you start realizing it, it's pretty amazing, you know? And then like, I I think because we're raised with this filter, because we're we're told the Bible teaches eternal torment, then you're trained to read, whenever you do read the Bible, you read it with that lens, with that filter, you read into the text things that are not there, or you misread it. Um, And then, but once in a while, when you come across a verse that like really challenges that idea that really does teach universal reconciliation. You don't know what to do with it. Right. Like, you know, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Or, you know, you know, we, well, in all those verses, right. There's like 76 different ones that I've found so far. There's probably more, but there's like 76 verses in the Bible that embrace and, and specifically teach universal reconciliation. Like, Holy crap, Romans 11. Um, so, you know, it's all over the place. So like, but once, it, until you have that filter shifted or removed, you don't notice those things. Or if you do notice them, you're trained to just go, "Oh, it can't mean that." It must—I don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. It must mean something else.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've I've gone past that. I, I've always taken, I, I've I've liked the exegetical biblical stuff, but I've taken more of like the philosophical approach to universalism as well. Even, I mean, when I wrote "All Set Free," this is back in like 2015. It's pretty Bible heavy. But even then, like I, I don't know. Do you do you take? Uh, is 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 yours more biblical and theological than philosophical? In in this book.
1: Um. Well, I think I start off the book more kind of making the case. So yeah, the beginning of the book is much more like here's here are the three views. Here are here um uh, and, and those just in case people aren't sure what they are. So there's of course the one we all know, eternal torment. The one universal the recon- is the
0: one that's correct right the one
1: that, yeah yeah of course there's univer- there's eternal torment there's universal reconciliation and then there's um annihilation or conditional immortality and so right. i just I, so I explain the three views I give here's scriptural references like the main verses that if you believe that view these would be the main verses you would say this is this is the biblical quote unquote proof uh, to support that view right. and then sort of summarize the views and where they come from and then one by one I just sort of go through those verses and say like eternal torment. These are the main verses, but do these verses really say that? And no, they don't. And, or, you know, annihilation, same thing. And then, then I kind of end with uh, universal reconciliation. And then we look at those verses that support that. Um, but then, so then after that, then of course I touch on the historical aspects of it that we mentioned, right? All these early church fathers that believed it and things like that. The the historical source for eternal torment, because since the view doesn't come to us from the Jewish prophets, And the, uh, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, where did it come from? That it came from uh, Egyptian pagan sources It crept in, ironically, around the time of Christ um, into the Jewish faith. And so I like kind of point those things out. And then like the second half of the book is more the philosophical side of things. Like that's, that's where I get into what to me is a pretty, pretty important distinction, which is that whichever of those three views you decide you think is true you're saying something not just about what you think happens to people after they die. You're also saying something about the character and nature of God. Right. You're saying that God is either pick one of these three, because this is the, these are your choices. You think God is either a torturer. And what he does is he tortures people forever who reject him. Or you think God is a destroyer. Uh, if people don't accept him, he just annihilates them and they cease to exist forever as if they never even existed at all. Or, you think that God is a a loving father who restores and transforms and heals His own children, and would never reject any of them. So I think those are your choices, and I think philosophically, I'm not comfortable with the with the first two. <laughs> but Keith, not, what
0: about free will? Because that's going to be the the uh, ultimate yeah. defense.
1: Of course, that is always the deal. And um and I do deal with that in the book as well. And let's talk about that cuz I think that's a great thing. David to me David Bentley Hart has uh, one of the best responses to that. Like it's it does it has has nothing to do. I know people even Greg Boyd I talked to Greg Boyd about this and I think he's probably closer to an annihilationist ironically.
0: Um he would be more on the libertarian side of free will.
1: Yeah. And so that that's his hang up and um his thing is like well, but Keith, you know, God would never force this on anybody. And if somebody wanted to reject God, uh, you know, God, God, of course, would honor that decision. And it's like, okay, theoretically, sure. Uh, I don't, I don't think, but I don't think there's going to be any coercion. I don't, to me, there's no coercion at all involved in universal reconciliation. Um, I I guess to me, the analogy, tell me what you think about this. To me, the analogy is like, if you had been, you know, uh, like you're wandering in, in the Mojave Desert for like a week with no water and you're like inches away from like just dying from dehydration and and sunstroke and you, you climb over this Hill and I'm standing there with a, you know, sitting at a table with a giant pitcher of ice water. How am I, how am I going against your free will if you run over and pour yourself a glass and drink, drink the ice water? I'm just offering it. And there it is. And if you'd like some, you can have some. It's not like, oh, yeah, but Keith, come on, you you forced Matt to to drink that ice water. No, I didn't. It's just sitting there and I offered him some.
0: Yeah, and, and me, I'll, I'll take it further and say that <laughs> the person who doesn't run over there is not free.
1: Exactly. And that's David Billinghart's point is that, you know, to say, oh, I I must have the freedom to resist that. And let's stick that's with that. Annihil- no, it's not. <laughs> it would have to. We would all if we were standing around. OK, and that was happening, right? And uh and some guy wandered over and we could tell he was obviously dehydrated and had sunstroke and he was desperate and he was you know he was inches away from death if he didn't get some water and we offered him ice water and he refused it, we would think, Yeah, I think we probably need to call nine one one and take him to a hospital and give him an I V because he's not in his right mind. He no,
0: his blood not, sugar's low and he's <laughs> not yeah. yeah, he's not
1: thinking properly. Like we would know. So that's David Bentley Hart's point is that any anyone who would not choose something that would be for their own good, it's the most normal thing to do as a mm-hmm. human being, right? We all move towards our own pleasure, th- towards our own protection and health and safety. That's a normal thing to do. And if you don't do that, if you're throwing yourself, you know, into broken glass or into a fire, mm-hmm. or it's like, we would, lo- we would not call that freedom. We would say, no. Hey dude, you- there's something wrong and we need to help you get, just get fixed, get straight, you know, like what's going on here? And so, yeah, any truly free person has the freedom to choose their own ultimate good.
0: Right. Yeah. We've, um, you know, Mike Machuga's dad was uh, was a philosophy professor for 30 some odd years and he's a universalist and and is uh, like the thing that annoys him the most is libertarian free will. and And he's refuted it so many times and but people people in america though it is a very autonomous mindset you are your island unto yourself your your freedom comes from simply the ability to just have ultimate choices like ultimate do, yeah, libertarian freedom and i think that is so overrated yeah like it w- it would it's like the freedom to choose the absurd that's right the freedom to choose the harmful and You know, I'm, I'm also a very big Tolkien nerd, and I think Tolkien nails it with like where, like what our freedom is really like. It's like with the ring, that's, that's where so many people like, when we choose that which harms, we're enslaved to something.
1: That's right. We're not in and our we, right mind. Yes. No. We yeah. end
0: up like Gollum. I mean, the person who rejects the water is no different than Gollum and we we would say well Gollum has the freedom to, you know, make his choices. <laughs> it's like no, I think you don't read Tolkien very well. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. I think um you know, and so like going back to the libertarian thing too, it's like you know, I this is the conversation I was having with Greg Boyd on this and He's like, yeah, you know, God wouldn't force anybody. People have the right to reject him and to turn away from him. I go. I said, you know what? You're right. I'd say, you know what? So when you die and um and you've never cared about God, you've rejected all these, you know, views of God as a wrathful, angry God, and you know, you can't understand how a good God can make people suffer. And, you know, you just have all your good reasons for why you're not you don't believe in God and you reject all of that stuff. Great. That's great. So you die, and now. All that other stuff is burned away. Everything is clear in your mind. You're face to face with this being of ultimate love, ultimate acceptance. This thing, you know what you would call it—the God-shaped hole, right? But just like you're now face to face with this being, you can clearly see, you clearly know, you you know as you are known. You you understand all these things. You realize God is not who you thought God was, and you're not being forced. You you recognize that you have the you you have the right to accept or reject um, this being that you have longed for this connection, right. This ultimate love that you've always desired. Um, you know, that's great. You you can resist it. Like, but, but my whole question is not just why, but would be like, okay, so let's say you decide for whatever reason to reject it. How long do you think you could hold out? Like a million years, a hundred thousand years of, you know, a, a 10 billion years, like take your time. Uh, it's okay. And so yes. I just don't think it, it just because it doesn't make sense that you would reject something again that would be your ultimate good and ultimate not if ultimate. you saw things,
0: yeah, not if you saw things clearly to me. Um, I think Eric Raton uses this uh, analogy, it would be like saying you could flip a coin forever and always have it land on head, yeah, and it's like unless God. Tr- you know, stops the ability to make that free choice at the point of our death. And then you've already locked in your free choice. Yeah. But again, that, I mean, that goes back to, okay, what kind of God is that? Right. You know, if, if God doesn't continue to let you have that free choice to where even you can, you know, leave hell, let's say, you know, walk through the gates that yep. are not locked. I don't know. It depends on right. Lewis's analogy. Um, you know, if he's like, no, you had your chance, buddy. Then, then, and, 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 the free will defense, it still doesn't get God off the hook on, on why there's this yeah. torturous situation in the first place. I mean, you don't, it's not like, it's not like I get to build like a fire pit out back and say, well, if you don't, you know, tell my daughter, Hey, if you don't choose the right choice, I'm not going to put you in there, but that's kind of what you're choosing. It's right. like, well, don't right. build the fire in the first place. dude. Right.
1: Well, but this is the other thing too. Like again, this whole idea of a uh, of free will, Especially in that view of like, if you, okay, so if if what you're saying is what you believe, like that whole saying or the phrase everyone uses, right? No, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves to hell. Okay. Mm -hmm. So who, who again, in their right mind would say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go jump in that lake of fire and just uh, enjoy an eternity of absolute, you know, torture for all time. Like unending. That's my choice. Bullshit! No, you're not. No one's going to choose that. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, I don't think that that exists anyway. Like, I don't no. think there is a, a a literal lake of fire. This is this is one of the other problems, right? With these with the views of hell, especially the eternal torment, but in a way, annihilation as well. It's still a sort of literalizing the metaphor of fire or of hell Mm -hmm. like oh no it's a literal fire or a flame it will literally burn you and and you know and the purpose of it is just to really hurt or to destroy you or to torture you and again these are metaphors throughout scripture it's not literally any freaking lake of fire it that's not what it is um you know there's there's an old testament reference to uh the fuller's soap right or the refiner's fire Mm -hmm. and then that's very different again it's still a metaphor but it's a metaphor expressing, it's burning off all the stuff, like in a way, you know, sticking with kind of the analogies that we're using right now, it's burning away all those um, misconceptions, right? All the things you thought about God and about yourself and about the universe and all, and all of that. So, the, if the, what the fire does is burn away um, all of that so that what you're left with is a complete, pure, you know, understanding. Of, of the way things really are, of who God really is, and who you really are, and all that. So yeah. it's a metaphor. There's no actual fire. Um, the universal. That's why the universal reconciliation view their view is not that people escape the fire. That's also a big shock to people. They think that
0: right. they
1: think universal reconciliation teaches, Oh, oh
0: Hitler's, Hitler's going to waltz into heaven. Yeah.
1: No one's waltzing in. The point is it's what the fire does is it's a, it's a metaphor for transformation. So in that, in the universal reconciliation view, everyone past quote unquote passes through the fire. It's just that that fire again is a metaphor for that transformational process. And so that's a great point. Okay. Great, great thing Like the Hitler thing right because they get that all the time too. and I want to say that hit the 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 version of Hitler that you would encounter in heaven is not the same guy he is he has been restored, if you want to say it to like an original innocence to to um, the character and nature of his of his true self of who he was when he was like a child before he got twisted into the person he became who did all those things. So he, he will be, but we all will be, we'll all be, you know, transformed and healed and restored to this original innocence, this original, you know, goodness, uh, without all the crap, you know, in our, that, that shaped us into what we may have become later. And this is the other thing about it too, because usually when you say that, then people say, That's not, that's not right. That's not fair. You know, because we kind of want Hitler to squirm. We want to see, we want to get there and see him, you know, and other quote unquote evil people. Uh, we want to see them suffering and and torturing and being tortured. And my, my reaction to that is, and that's the part of you that's going to be transformed so that when you get there, you're not going to become the person who wants to see another person suffer.
0: Well, and they are going to suffer in a way, in a
1: way, but not for eternity.
0: Well, no, see that—that's the thing. Like people, I mean, uh, Hebrews twelve eleven, discipline. Yes, it it always is painful for the one being disciplined, but it—but it produces, you know, the fruit of righteousness, something like that.
1: Yeah, can I? I tell you, I have it right in front of me. I actually have it on a post-it on my computer. No, yes, I'm not correcting you. I'm just gonna. This is this is what it says, <laughs> Hebrews 12, starting in verse five through eleven. It's actually that is an actually powerful universalist verse because it 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 says so many beautiful things. So, so first, it's what it says is that you know it mentions like discipline, right? But it, but it makes the point, right? It says you know uh, discipline, uh, God disciplines those He loves.
0: Mm-hmm. Then it
1: says, and everyone undergoes discipline. Huh? Do the math there. If God only disciplines His children, true children, and by the way, everyone undergoes discipline, then that means everyone is a child of God. So uh, there you go. So God disciplines us, all of us, and like you said, it here's the purpose of it: is it torture, is it annihilation, or Hebrews twelve five? God disciplines all of us for our good, so that we can share in the holiness of God. And what this does is yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness so there is a there is a method to the madness there is a reason and a purpose yeah. for that and it's yeah. always for a good
0: it's always for a good and that's yeah. um that's uh what i don't like about anything but universalism it's like what is the ultimate point of annihilation To get rid of someone who didn't get it right or was bad or reject I mean continue that that to me it's like it's like okay then then what happens to those who do make it if your loved ones aren't there? Yeah. What about the interconnectivity of all of us? You know, what about the what about the people who reject Christ because they were molested by a priest who's wearing a cross while he's doing it? You know? Yeah, yeah this is take it it again it goes back it ta- it it doesn't take into account like the the communal aspect of all of us it's very right. it's very autonomous salvation which is not jewish at all uh, <laughs> it's communal salvation is jewish right. not individual yeah. salvation like it was all it was all about israel becoming a nation and a whole nation and not under oppression and yeah the messiah wasn't just going to save individual jews the Messiah right. was coming to liberate the people of of you know, yeah. So absolutely. we've made it just so individualized, and and I just don't you know how does in that in that um, I don't take my theology from the Book of Revelation typically, <laughs> but how is God wiping away everyone's tears if your sons and daughters and spouses and mothers and fathers and nieces and friends are not there? they're right. just either gone or or oh well they're gone but they're also suffering or they're just annihilated right it's a, it's a very it's a very like okay what are you going to men and black me what are you going to do about because
1: right yeah right and then and then yeah exactly so then basically i'm a mindless brain wiped you know half person like david billhard right. had a, had a great response exactly along those lines on that same exact point about how every one of us is an amalgamation of everyone we've ever known, right?
0: Yep. Not
1: only, not only even the people I've known, um, you know, my parents, my friends, my brothers and sisters, people I've interacted with and known in my, through my lifetime, but even people I've never met in my past, right. That, that informed them. Like we've, you know, we've inherited and passed on and benefited from the wisdom and the, uh, of, of everyone that's ever lived. Right. And, and he said, you know, to, to live in some eternal state where, the majority of those people are just erased and blipped out. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that they're blipped out, but our memories of them are blipped out. Like, so I've just sort of been, yeah, like lobotomized. So it's like, mm-hmm. it, I, we get a spiritual lobotomy or something. And again, it, it doesn't, I, I think ultimately, I'm glad you said that. See, this ultimately is my, because for a brief time, I was an annihilationist. I went from eternal torment. I landed on the annihilation because I thought, well, <clears throat> I still, I think I, it was because I was still thinking along the lines I was still thinking in that way like you're saying that there's us and them uh-huh. that there are Christians who pray the prayer and are faithful to God and you know because there are and and I'll be honest there are these verses that it's Paul seems to be speaking at times and this is what's confusing sometimes Paul seems to be speaking in sort of an exclusionary way
0: yeah. you know
1: this is what's true for those in Christ which which begs the question or you know assumes oh, well, therefore, I guess if you're not in Christ, this isn't true of you and you right. don't get this benefit. Right. But at the same time, and sometimes even in the same chapter or the same letter or the same book, um, he'll affirm that Christ is all and is in all, or, you know, and so, or, or Christ is the one who fills everything in every way. Okay. Or Christ is the one who we live and move and have our being. So, uh, I mean, I think I understand there's some legitimate confusion on that, but I get for me, ultimately, yeah, I just felt like I got, once I got over that, what I think is a lie, which I think is a um, something that you know religion introduced later, uh, is this idea that well, there's only there's us and them, right? Um, and, and this is so funny, uh, real quick, because this relates to what we're saying. Uh, a guy on Facebook messaged me just the other day, and he had a question about universalism. And he said he was reading an article by N. T. Wright. a from mm-hmm. um, uh, from like 1977, very old. And he says um, that he says according to N. T. Wright. That the word "all" in in the the universalist passages that seem to suggest everyone is saved, he makes a point that that word "all" typically in the Greek really means "ethnos," or all of the Jews and Gentiles. And he and he said, "Can you help me with that?" Because he was confused by that, like as if what it was saying was in his mind only Jews and Gentiles get saved. And I'm like, you have to put yourself in the mindset of a Jewish person. To a Jew, you were either a Jew or you were what? a Gentile.
0: Yeah, you were, so there it, wasn't a third category. It, what I else think. is there,
1: right? So, now you know, can, you can, we today could say, yeah, but what about Asians and what about like, what we're thinking Gentiles is like white Caucasians or Romans or something, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but that's not what was in view. Like to a Jew, you were. if you're not a Jew, you're what? A Gentile. So, yeah. so for Paul to say the ethnos word, to use the word ethnos, the ethnos uh, phraseology, when he talks about all being saved, he means Everyone, Jews and non-Jews, which is there's no other category. So yeah. you have to break away from the us and them kind of thinking. And I think once you can do that, if we recognize that Christ is all and, and is all and in all, and Christ is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And then there is no such thing as the even the ability to exist outside of a connection with God or Christ.
0: And I think that's a good that's a good point too. Is that um, kind of Another reason to affirm universalism is it does counter to what people warn you about. It doesn't make you want to go sin and just live it up and and go you know have an affair with your neighbor and blah 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 it doesn't make you want to do that. It makes you realize like why would I hold a grudge if I think that we're all in at the end if right. if we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to i'm gonna have to live with my dad forever like I can't like hate him forever, you know even yeah. though he you know was a shitty dad. <laughs> Right, but it it allows you. I think it allows you to live. Like I said that on um, uh, the Love Unrelenting YouTube channel. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like it just opens the door to allow you to be present, to be in the moment, to not have this fear, this yep. worry, and that's what paralyzes you. Um, Mike Machuga in our first book, um, says that you know fear is a trap, and the fear of hell is the ultimate trap. And you think, you think it's like this liberating gospel, but really, it's just a trap and it makes you not even appreciate life. It it just, um, it's like this at minimum back burner anxiety and it paralyzes you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that's the thing too. Like, yeah, once to me, that's the beautiful fruit that I have personally experienced from, from embracing this view of universal reconciliation, because all of a sudden now there is no us in them. When I meet another person, I don't immediately go, "Are they a Christian or not?" Or if you know, if, if I hear that someone died or someone's you know brother or sister or mother or father died, I don't immediately ask, oh, "Did they pray the prayer? Were they, they a Christian?" Or? Right? Because I, I so you can actually learn to relax. You have no fear and anxiety. You can actually relate to other human beings as another human being, and recognizing that I'm not separated from anybody. This idea of oneness. This idea of atonement. Uh, being one with God, it's also being one with everyone else and everything else, and so mm-hmm. um, that that is a radical and beautiful part of the gospel. I think it is a part of the gospel that uh, has sort of been, you know, edited out of the Christianity that we've inherited, uh, which I would love to reclaim. I'd love to go back to that and say, "Man, there are so many beautiful verses in your New Testament." That are affirming, this is to me part of the the radical part of the gospel, that, you know, God is the father of everyone. We are all his children. That, um, that God's ultimate plan is to restore all things. And that's everything. And there's nothing separated f- us from God. There's nothing separating. And therefore, if everyone is connected to God, then everyone is connected to everyone else it's that's that for me talking about like philosophically was something that kind of came out of my thinking along these lines. Like the more I started thinking, I think we have to break out of that individualistic thinking, right? I think West, the Western mindset is very much like, you know, I have my personal relationship with God and, and then you have yours. And, but, but you know, we're, we're these two separate individualized kind of people, but recognizing that if, as Jesus prayed, you know, that we would be one, even as he and the father are one. Well, let's think about that. Uh, in what ways are Jesus and the father one? Are they like good buds? They hang out. They like each other a lot. No, 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 no. Like in the Christian theology to say that the cry, Jesus and the father are one is like, we can't, we don't know where one ends and the other begins. So Jesus is saying that he wants us, all of us to be one in the same way that he's one with the father. Um, When Jesus affirms this idea in John, when he says, you know, in that day, you will realize that I am in my father. My father is in me and I am in you. Like if we really meditate on those kinds of things, it's like, well, then holy crap, there is no separation. Not for me and God and not for me and anyone else.
0: Just in your mind. That's the only, That's, that's the only place. That's it. That's right. It's not like, it's not like this is true that Jesus just said that once you acknowledge it. Right. It's true, <laughs> it's true so whether you think it. so or not. That's exactly. right. Right.
1: Exactly. No, and that is a great distinction. Right? We think it's only true when you believe it. It's like mm-hmm. no, it's true whether you believe it or not.
0: Exactly. And that's where it's not that most Christians get things wrong on a lot of times. I think they get the order of things wrong. Right. Yeah. And so they'll get that order wrong or they'll talk about, "Well, universalism cheapens grace and there's no repentance." It's like, "No, actually, it's the grace that allows us the ability to see things clearer. Yeah. And then we repent because of it. That's right. So it's it's not like, oh, you they get it backwards, I think. They get, oh, you better repent so that you're forgiven. No, you're forgiven, so repent. That's right.
1: That's exactly and, right. And to
0: me, that's the order of most of the New Testament. It's like, no, you're forgiven, now go and sin no more. Yep. That's yep. that's the order. They've got the cart before the horse,
1: right? And see, they, to me, that is the, again the the powerful and like lost scandal of what I believe is the true gospel. That's right there in in the Bible, in, in the New Testament, is um, is exactly that. Like you know, Jesus walks around forgiving people constantly. He's but only really- because
0: he's later going to die, Keith.
1: Yeah, but he ne- here's he- the odd thing. He never forgives anyone after the cross. <gasps> what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. The, the proclamation, I, again, here's another post-it note I have you know, uh, on my computer right here, because I, I quote it probably on a daily basis. Second Corinthians 5.19, for God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. Like I just posted the other day uh, on social media, I said, you know, quoting that, uh, referencing Second Corinthians 5.19, and I just I rephrased it, paraphrased it, and said, the world is forgiven, everyone's forgiven, everyone is reconciled to God. And then I put that reference because that's just what start it says. Quoting,
0: what you should start doing is just quote directly from Paul on those universal passage, and then and then just put Rob Bell behind it. Right, and then people and freak see out. people will freak out and be like, <laughs> "Gotcha! It's actually Paul. It's in your Bible." I
1: mean, oh, I'm sorry, that was Paul. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rob, no, I know you're, mean, you're listening. We won't do that. Sorry.
1: No, but you know what? I, I have, I've been playing with a, a blog, running a blog post exactly on that. Thing about like <clears throat> or because you know, I thought you were gonna say like if I just said that without quotation marks and without yeah. a reverence just say it if it's like oh Keith says everyone is in Christ <clears throat> uh, everyone is forgiven and everyone is reconciled to God you heretic and then if I said oh by the way I, I'm sorry that wasn't me that that was Paul yeah then you know then then it's something like well what because we hear it and and we filter it depending on who we think said it right? We react differently depending mm-hmm. on who we think said it. it even Because if I do quote it that way as a Bible verse, and it's a scandalous verse, and it's like to me, it's like, holy crap, does the Bible say that? There's always the, oh, yes, Keith, but you need to rightly divide the word of truth. You're not taking the whole Bible together. You're just cherry picking one thing. But what about the wrath of God? What about the justice of God? So that's what happens when you quote it as a scripture verse. But if you just say it, like you said, either attributing it to somebody that people typically don't like, or just say it in general, just like you're saying it. Um, people actually hear it. They hear what you're really saying, and it freaks them out.
0: <laughs> yeah. We always get hung up so much on the Bible. Yeah. And it, when we say we got to rightly divide the word, it's like, <laughs> translation, you better agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: rightly dividing the word is harder than people think, right? It's
0: very difficult. I mean, yeah. isn't that the whole point of like the risen Christ goes and like interprets all the scriptures for them? Yes. Because they just, they still don't get it. Right. Like, right. But he did, I, you know, I made a point of that. We're not talking about my book today, but uh, maybe in the future. And I wasn't the first one to come up with any of this stuff. But like when you actually look at how Jesus divided the word, oh, if you yeah. want to use that word, it's like. Yeah. He's very creative. And as the old joke goes, if Paul was, he was, he would, Paul would fail seminary. Right. Yes. Because oh, yeah. It's it's like they use it so, in a such a foreign way to how we use it in our churches today. And I remember asking a pastor that. It was the time when I was told that if I continue to ask questions, I'd be formally like kicked out of church. Wow. And I said, well, just ask, you know, during this conversation, I was like, ask yourself if you've ever considered this. How did Jesus approach his scriptures? How did he read it? How did he quote it? We all hear that he has quoted it. Right. But how did he do it? Right. Like, I never asked that question. I was like, there you go. Like, that, it's such a basic question, but it's such a, like, oh, duh. Like, shouldn't we look into this?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it really does boil down to the way you look at the Bible, the way we approach the Bible. That's why, like, you know, out of my seven part series that I wrote, people have asked me like well which one should I start with And it's like, well on uh, the one the I well <laughs> I say well <laughs> uh, I didn't write them I mean I, I they weren't written to be read in a certain order so you can you know, in a way you can just read whatever one you want, whatever topic interests you but uh, but I kind of recommend if you are gonna start with something, I do think it's helpful to start with my book, Jesus Unbound, because that's the one about the Bible. And it's about the go. way we approach the Bible,
0: yep. because
1: I think that is the fundamental problem. It's the way we approach the Bible. Yeah. And, um, and we, we should, that'll be another episode down the road. We'll talk about the Bible. Cause like that really, I think it is the crux. It's the biggest problem. It's the way we approach scriptures. Um, and it, it's not easy. I, I have sympathy for, um, I have sympathy for the average Christian not like you and me who like love reading theology books. And
0: you I know. thought you were going to say who are better than them, but <laughs> I, go on.
1: But yeah, but, but, but just like the average Christian who's just like, I'm just reading my Bible every morning in my de- quiet time. I'm devotional or whatever. Maybe I'm teaching Sunday school for the junior high group at church, whatever. And I know the Bible says this, and so I believe it. It's like, man, you have no idea how – your English translation, it doesn't even matter what translation you're using, any English translation you're using, there's going to be parts of it that are like, well, actually it doesn't say that, or there's a word missing, or that word doesn't mean that it means something else. And that got changed later. I mean like, damn, it's like really hard. Like, or even with the old covenant scriptures, like, there's a radical difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. The average person has no clue what that even either one of those things are. Yeah. So there's just so many.
0: Or when we talk to um, Alexander John Shia, who is Lebanese and yeah. and knows Aramaic, yeah, saying how there is no way to translate Aramaic to English. Like there's just not. Yeah. It's it's it. The appro the methodology of the language is so foreign that there is lost in translation there.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is the other thing. So it's not even just the language and the translation, but there's also the culture Mm -hmm. that it was written in that we are so far removed from, right? There's all that. There's that wackadoodle thing, which um, I think the Naked Bible podcast, wasn't it, Michael Hauser brought this up, um, which is excellent scholarship. But the idea of like how in the first century around Paul's time, um, the science of the day was this idea that women with the women's long hair pulled testosterone up in up into their bodies so they could get pregnant, and so um, it's that's the reason why Paul appeals yeah. to nature, what is natural when mm-hmm. he says that women should cover their hair and men shouldn't have long hair and all that stuff. That's what he's referring to. It's so wackadoodle, and you unless yeah. you know that culture or in First Timothy, what's going on with Artemis worship in Ephesus. If you don't know all that, you, you will completely misunderstand. That's why yeah. you could read a verse in First Timothy where Paul says women will be saved through childbirth. Through
0: childbirth.
1: And yeah. you're like, what the hell does that mean? Well, if you don't understand the Artemis worship cult and what they taught and what they believed, you won't understand that. And there's yeah. So yeah, there's just so many things, you know, the culture of the day. Um yeah, just there's just so much that makes it really, really challenging to understand.
0: Right. And that's why I, I- I bristle a little bit when people go one or two ways. They go the, the word of God. That I mean, obviously that stuff, the inerrantists, all those literalists. <laughs> <sighs> Annoying. But when people go the other way and they're just like, oh, these are all just backwards, stupid people. It's like, well, no, they're, they're working with assumptions of the time right. that if you and I were born in that time, we would be no different than them. We would, that would be our context. We, we couldn't look, we wouldn't be in the first century going, oh, you buffoons don't understand science. You don't understand germ theory. You don't understand the antiseptic, you dumbass. You don't understand how women get pregnant. Right. We, we would be right along going, oh, okay, well that's, I guess how it works. Like, right. I guess, yeah, don't cut your hair or cover it up, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 And so exactly like the same thing's going on in first Corinthians too, when Paul's talking about, um, that the effeminate, right,
0: yeah.
1: uh, will n- will not in- inherit the kingdom of God, and like what you know, we talked about this. I think last episode, you know, Malachi, that, like, okay, so first of all, understand what Paul wasn't thinking was quote unquote nature, and what Paul is saying there is that if a man shaves his beard, he can't go to heaven, or if a man uh, is effeminate, he likes poetry and music, which are Tim girly things. He's not going to, he's not going to be saved, which by the way, I don't think that's Paul, what Paul is even saying, but, but that's what it seems to say. It's like, we should be able to objectively look at that and say, okay, yeah, I I know Paul probably maybe thought that, but that's bullshit. Like we, we don't believe that we no. would never, God, I hope not. We would never let a pastor stand up in a pulpit on a Sunday morning and say, hey, m- every man in this room. Who who has shaved his beard is living in sin and is an abomination no. to God. Right. You would be like, Where are you getting that from? You're crazy. Oh, I'm getting it from the from the Apostle Paul. And you would be. But that's the point. Not everything that Paul says is something you should embrace. Right? You have to think again, going back to thinking critically and logically.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and I'm sorry, but like some of the main characters of the Bible would be Malakoy. David? Yes. Fuck with his songs and shit. Like <laughs> Get <laughs> out of here. Probably bisexual, maybe with and, Jonathan. And,
1: yeah, him and Jonathan holding hands and having a great time. Oh, you know, well, that's the most
0: <laughs> effeminate shit I ever heard. So, uh, yeah, the point being, like, obviously, as a bi, bi man, I'm joking, but right. like, our it's not, our poets, Bob Dylan. Yeah, you know. Come on.
1: Yes, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that,
0: you're a sinner. If you, you're Bob a Dylan, sinner?
1: Bob yeah. Dylan's been,
0: yeah roasting. right. Out. Roast in hell, Shakespeare, you son of a—Tolkien, <laughs> because Tolkien, have you read Lord of the Rings? There's so much poetry all in there. That oh gets yeah, C.S. Lewis,
1: like, C.S. Lewis writing all these children's stories. Yeah. You know, yeah, Mammy, what Pammy. a
0: pansy! Yes. <laughs>
1: Talking lions and <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: see, yeah, that, that's just um, again. This is a part of why I love the fact that you address the biblical stuff in your book. I do the I do the same thing when I approach universalism, but. Let's just say all things being equal, there's an equal amount of, of of evidence that the Bible supports hell as eternal torment or conditional immortality and universal reconciliation. Let's just say it's all equal. The Bible's not saying one thing over the other. It just says a lot of things, and that's kind yeah. of my contention. I think a lot of writers probably believe different things. Like I point, I'm pointing it out in a follow up to heretic and. I uh, got this from with your help with David Bentley Hart that we can't know what Jesus meant by gehenna. Right. He may have meant annihilation. He may have thought that. There may there we we can't really know uh, exactly what is meant by a lot of things. So that's why for me it's got to go beyond the bible. We got we have to think of things critically and philosophically and and sociologically and psycholog- psychologically. Um and I know that a lot of Christians are going to bristle at that. Sure. They, you know, they, de- you know, it's got to be the Bible, but I'm sorry, but the Bible doesn't put forth one answer.
1: That's right. On and a then, lot of things, really. Yeah, and this is the thing too. Like you're right. This, this is also where people get really freaked out. But um, ironically, I think what we're saying, this concept is a biblical concept. I think actually we are invited the same way Jesus read scripture, the same way Paul treated scripture, which is not at with, with such a loose and free way of, of approaching it. Um, you know, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. And and he, I think he says it in the context of basically allowing us to challenge, because it's it's in response to the re- rephrasing, reframing the Old Testament question, you know, who am I, in the clay, to say to the potter, why have you made mm-hmm. me thus? So he kind of quotes that. And then his response is, but you have the mind of Christ. It's like, it's answering the question, who has the right to question God? You do. Right, so yeah. I really love Matthew Corman's book.
0: And like yeah, I, was the, to, I was just thinking of him when you were saying that.
1: Yeah, the biblical pattern is you had better question those things. You right. should. You you have a mind. You have the mind of Christ. You and I have an ability to recognize when Paul says something stupid, like mal, being malacoi and shaving your beard is you know disqualifies you from something. To look at that and say, or even here is another one, when, because you know Paul the Paul also believed in archons. He believed in these demonic powers and authorities over each major city and nation that were sort of like, uh, angelic kind of governors, um, almost literally like what we would consider a president or a governor over a nation, um, uh, that there were these spiritual powers and forces that that kind of governed things in the spiritual realm that way, and they were called yeah. called archons. And we know right. this. We know that it, he refers to these principalities and powers. That's what he's referring to. This was a, a known kind of belief at the time. And so I can acknowledge, okay, yeah, Paul believed that, but I don't have to because yeah. I'm I'm able to go, no, that's bullshit. I don't believe that. Yeah. So so in other words, like the, the biblical principle, the pattern actually is we should question those things we have the authority and the right to question the bible because so many things that are biblical are not Christ-like, right that's the problem we have to have to, this is why again it depends on how you approach scripture you, if you approach a take a flat bible approach then you're handcuffed to whatever's written there you got to believe it and do it or or a flat uh, a jesus centric approach which is in contrast to that which, which is what I would take, which is like if you begin with Christ, you begin with Jesus, and if it doesn't line up with Jesus, it, it's bullshit. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to follow that or accept that because I don't think you should own people as property. I don't think, you know, people, guys who shave their beards should be rejected for something like all that stuff. I just think that's nonsense.
0: And yet you have a beard, Keith. So what's up with that?
1: I just prefer to have one. It's not about getting into heaven.
0: <laughs> uh huh. I'm not covering you my bed. Covering say just that. in
1: case. Just in case.
0: <laughs> just in case. All right. Well, I would um, I would encourage every everyone listening to pick up your book if they haven't already. It, it's um, you have a way of putting forth really good ideas but explaining it really succinctly, but not suffering from too much brevity.
1: Yeah. So it's
0: a nice balance for the average Christian to, to quote you, um, who isn't as smart as us and isn't as wise and knowledgeable. <laughs>
1: Don't beat it like that.
0: <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm fucking with you people. Um, no, but I mean, it. it it's good because people, look, people aren't going to, aren't going to digest David Bentley Hart. Some people right. aren't. A lot of people are, a lot of people aren't. Right. Um, I, I I struggle as, as much as I've studied philosophy oh, yeah. and everything, I struggle with David Bentley Hart. Me too. Not not that's not a knock on him. That's a knock on my IQ. It's <laughs> probably not high enough. <laughs> oh, <the same laughs> here. Pe- pe- people aren't gonna read Douglas Campbell. People aren't gonna read, you know, people you know, people like that, scholars. And so yeah. it's a good bridge. It's a it's a lovely bridge that those of us who do read those things that, you know a lot of people aren't going to read. Hopefully we're able to put our own ideas into, into a way to reach people on a more popular level. And I yeah. think you do a good job of that. Thank so. you.
1: Yeah. That's exactly what I try to do. Um, going back to philosophy, like I was a philosophy minor in college and, um, I remember reading, you know, Hegel and Kant and, um, I think know, it's
0: pronounced c- cunt. No, <laughs> cunt? Kant. can no, I, right.
1: can I, I'm allowed to say that on this podcast?
0: You could say, yeah. Um,
1: Anyway, you know, reading reading uh, these uh, philosophical philosophical books, and um, and again, kind of like David Bentley Hart, they're written in such dense.
0: Ooh, you know, were tough.
1: No, they're hard. I mean, I would read the same sentence like ten times before I could. You ever it. read
0: Derrida? Oh, my uh, God. yeah. It's tough but, sledding.
1: <laughs> but but you know so but I would be kind of like trying to work my way through. So we have to try really hard sometimes to like figure out what the hell is this guy trying to say. But then once I finally figured it out, like you kind of cracked the code. Oh, 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 he's just saying something really simple. He just means dot, 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 dot. On the one hand, I would get pissed off. Like, well then why did you just say it that way? Damn it. You're smart enough <laughs> that you could have just said it that way, but you said it in the most difficult way you possibly could. Yeah. But at the same time, like, but once you unlock the concept, it's like, oh damn, that's really interesting. You know what? Well, now that I understand this really simple thing he's trying to say, well, now I want to talk to my to my wife about it or a friend about it. I'm not going to af- ask him to read that dense paragraph. I'm going to say, hey, real quick, Hegel says dot, 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 and and, and therefore dot, dot, dot. What do you think? I mean, now we can just have a conversation. So yeah. I started doing that in my philosophical studies where I would take things really complicated like that and, and then simplify them so I could talk to people about it. And I kind of feel like I'm doing the same thing with my books uh, in theology because, like you said, you read – Renee Girard, or David Bentley Hart, or even Dallas Willard. I've had people tell me they've read, you know, Dallas Willard stuff, or Girard stuff, or whatever, and they're like, "I, I couldn't understand that. I kept reading over and over again." I'm like, mm-hmm. "Well, okay, yeah. Here's what it means. It's real simple." So yeah. I love doing that. I love being able to take things that are complicated for a lot of people and hopefully simplify it so it's like easily understandable. Um, you know. So uh, yeah, thank you. I hope I hope that that's what I did in my book. I tried to take the topic and make it simple so that people can hopefully even make up their own minds. I mean, I definitely have a have a view in the book. And the main one is eternal torment has the weakest quote-unquote evidence of all mm-hmm. the three views in the Bible. I, I really do prefer universal reconciliation, and, and I give my reasons. But, you know, at the end of the day, people can read the book and look at the scriptural evidence, look at the historical evidence, think through the theological side of it, and, and come up with their own, you know, what do you think? So,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, you do a good job. And uh, so, yeah, everyone listening, pick it up. And uh, even if you're not listening on iTunes, can you please go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast? Because we don't just say that to boost our own egos. If uh, The more ratings you have, the more the algorithm uh, recommends certain shows to other people. So, uh, yeah, please, uh, anything above three stars, I suppose. Five would be ideal. Thank you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I would I would say, please, please give us five stars. That would yeah. be great.
0: Five stars, thanks. All right. All right, Keith. We'll see you next time, buddy.
1: Thanks, Matt.